everything in order spiritually. This morning we come again to our study of John, and I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bible there. Now, I want to remind you of where we were last week. Last week, we were not in the, first, the book of 1 John. We looked at a break glass moment. This was one of those sermons that is kind of a stand firm moment in the life of the church where we dealt with contemporary con- current issues that are hitting our society and our culture. Um, I encourage you, if you missed last Sunday, to make sure that you do two things. Number one, that you pick up the notes that are in the foyer. There are notes in the foyer, and there's two sets of notes. Those are in the foyer. I want to encourage you to get those. Number two, I want to encourage you to listen to the message online. It's an important message that deals with God's design of marriage. The world is very confused about that, not only confused, but really pushing back against God and His glory and His plan. And so I want to encourage you that. But for the notes this morning, that's why these guys are coming down the aisle. If you don't have the notes for this morning, you will need them. Lift your hand, and these um, guys and gals will be glad to give one to you so that you can come right along with us. We've been studying the great, powerful, little tiny letter of 1 John back at the end of your New Testament. Now, this is not the Gospel of John. This is the one of the epistles of John, or a letter of John. That's what epistle means. It means letter. If you're new to us this morning, we're going to do a little bit of review um, so you can remember. But it's been almost a month since we studied 1 John, so we're going to do that for all of us right now so that we can make sure that we dive in and get all of this text that we can this morning. The review begins as such. The author. Who is the author? He is, what's his name? John. And John was a disciple and an apostle. Now, an apostle means one who is sent out. And so he was one of the 12, in fact, part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, but he was also one of the key apostles that after Jesus ascended to the Father, he was sent out, and he was sent out to lead and to preach through, for the the growing of the church, and the spread of the gospel. The genre of this is it's an open letter to all churches. And so the writing style, this is important. This is important. Remember this. It is artistic. It's repeating. It's interwoven. It's layered. And do you remember what we said? It's progressively what? Revealing. So when you study the book of 1 John, you hear him say something, and then you hear him say it again in a different way, and it goes a little bit wider or a little bit deeper. And so that is part of what we see in the genre of this. If you don't understand that, you will miss out a lot on the emphasis in the beauty of 1 John and its powerful message for us. So that's why we want to recognize that. And you know, whenever you're studying the Bible... You really need to understand what genre you're studying. Is it a history? Is it poetry? Is it a narrative? What is it that is, part, that is there for us? And this is an important part. This is a letter that is a beautifully written letter um, that is unfolding. The setting is this. It's a, trans, it's a critical transition time 
at the end of the eyewitness era. That means all of the eyewitnesses are dying off. In fact, John is one of the last ones. This is around 90 AD or about 60 years after Jesus had died on the cross, risen from the dead, and then ascended to the Father. So 60 years have gone by. The church is growing. There are some great things that have happened in that first century, but there's also some very tough things that are in the case, that are um, in that first century. So notice here, there are doctrinal problems that John is dealing with. He's dealing with doctrinal problems in the churches. As always, what kind of teachers are rising up? False teachers are rising up. That's always the case. That was the, that was the case in Old Testament um, Israel. That was the case also in the New Testament, and it's the case today. False teachers rising up, declaring things that are distortions from the truth of God. But number two, that these false teachers brought new heresies circulating around, and many of them having to do with the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, and the nature of sin. Some were saying, no, I don't really sin. Um, there's a difference between my flesh and my body, which, you know, is, you know, it's prone toward evil, but my spirit is always prone toward righteousness, and so I don't really sin. The sins in the body don't really matter. Those were the kind of strange things that were being taught in the churches, which were patently false. Not only were there doctrinal problems, but there was another kind of problem. Do you remember? How about this? Behavioral problems. You see, when you believe the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. And that's the importance of us knowing the truth. That's the importance of studying the Bible. That's the importance of knowing what God has said. So behavioral problems come about in the life of the church. Many were loving the world instead of loving God and others. So we're called to love God and others. Those are, that's the first and the second commandment. They came to him and they said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God. And he said, you didn't ask about it, but I'll tell you what the second one is. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love those that are around you as you would love and take care of your own self. And so this is what the church is not doing. They're struggling in their love for God and their love for others because They've been captivated, they've been hypnotized by the world. So, doctrinal problems, behavioral problems, John's dealing with those. Verse 5, we saw that is the central premise of the whole letter, and this is the message. In fact, let's read that, that passage out loud together that begins with, this is the message. So, from chapter 1, here it goes in verse 5, let's read it. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So this could be the central message for the whole letter. God is righteous. You need to understand above everything else that your God is holy and righteous, in him is light, and he has not one iota of darkness. There is no darkness in him. He's never wrong. He's never false. He never lies. He, ne he never is deficient on a promise. He always delivers. And so John is saying, you must understand this at the outset, that God is good. 
But so far here we also see that the Apostle John wants us to know the reality and the centrality of, all thing, of Christ in all things. That's what we see in chapter 1. We also see the perfect nature of God, what we've just mentioned. We see the sinful nature of humanity. We see the forgiven nature of those who are in Christ. And then the last message, the last sermon we looked at, it said this. It is possible for two true Christians to have Christ's victory. Fill that in, Christ's victory over sin. And so there's, there's the beautiful picture that we are not in bondage to sin. In fact, notice with me at the top of your outline in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice the passage up there in verse 1. What does it say? The first half of the verse says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what we studied last time. That you may not sin. And how is it that we may not sin? It's through Christ. It's not through ourselves. It's through Christ. And so we saw that, that little bit of help from Latin. Some of you had said, man, that really helped me to start to understand how this works. That at first it's passe pacari, which means it's possible to sin. That was before the fall. Then it became non passe non pacari. It's not possible not to sin. That is the state in which everyone is after the fall. But if we come to faith in Jesus, if we have Christ living within us, it becomes passe non pacari, which means possible not to sin. That's what we see here in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 2, we see that in numerous other places of Scripture. But we're looking forward to that moment in heaven when it's non passe pecare. What does that mean, non passe pecare? Not possible to sin. How many of you look forward to that? I look forward to that. I look forward to the day where it's impossible for Andrew Coleman to sin. Marcy would tell you that's definitely not the case right now. Sins. That's what he does. But notice here, the, the Apostle Paul would say, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I believe that the, clo the closer we get to God, the more we often see our sinful heart, even in this state of being redeemed in Christ. And that's part of what we're dealing with this morning. What we study this morning is a slice of an important aspect of all theology. You know, there's all kinds of different ologies that we study when we're studying the Bible. There's Christology, the idea of who Christ is. Um, there's uh, eschatology, that means the study of end things. There's ecclesiology, that's the study of the life of the church. And there's, there's many different aspects of our theology that we study, but this morning as we come to this, we come to see Christ the advocate and the study of salvation, the study of salvation is called soteriology. And so it's not so important that you know that word, but I do want you to start to see this, this whole area of study, and it's an important area of study. And it's important for several different reasons. But soteriology, look what it means. Soter means savior. That's, that's the base of this word. So it's the savior and then logos or ology is where we get that from. The logos is the study of or word. And so the idea is it's a, it's a, uh, a linguistic and conceptual thought that your mind, your rationale can deal with. It has to do with language, and it has to do with that which is knowable. 
That's very important for us to see. That, so this is studying about how is it that we are saved. There's, a, there's a, uh, a slice of theology here from these verses that's very important. So let's say the word soteriology. Can you guys say that? I'm going to say it again, soteriology. Can you all say that? Soteriology. Let's do it one more time. Soteriology. And what is that the study of? Salvation. That's the study of salvation. Okay, so this is how, you know, there's many people who are somewhat confused about how God saves us. In fact, they might just kind of say, I don't know, he just saves us. In fact, sometimes when we sit down and we meet with people, we say, so tell me about your relationship with God, and we start talking about your faith and so forth, and, and as we are wanting to just find out, you know, what you understand about the Lord and, and um, your relationship with the Lord, there are some people who are very, very clear about how God has saved them, and then there's other people that, man, they, they would just say, I just, I really don't, I really don't know. And the beautiful thing is that some people come to a clear understanding of that even through these conversations. Many of you have sat down with a friend before and the friend has been saying, yes, but what do you believe? How, you know, how has this affected your life? And in what way has your heart submitted to the truths of God? And someone has helped you walk into a clear faith. Every Christian ought to be concerned about that with every other person and and uh, relationship in their life because this is the most important thing that we could ever talk about is whether or not we know God. I want to encourage you to notice here with me Christians should study soteriology because it, because it is throughout God's word. This is throughout God's word. We see hints all through the Old Testament and we see billboards sometimes, very, very loud statements. Through the, through the Old Testament, of how God saves his people. And then as we study through into the New Testament, we see that this is all about how he saves his people. Very, very important progression throughout all of God's word. Number two, Christians should study soteriology because it's extremely pertinent to their eternity. This is going to determine whether or not you know God whether or not you have come to God in proper faith, whether your faith is in vain or whether your faith is true. So it's not totally based upon what you know as to and how much you know, but here's the picture. The gospel is knowable. It's called, it, it is truth that we are called to believe. And if you believe the wrong thing, you cannot be saved. But if you believe what God has said about how we are saved, you can be saved. This is a knowable truth that will determine your eternity. Notice the last one here. Christians should study soteriology because it reveals the glorious nature of God's grace. It reveals the glorious nature of God's grace amazing, incredible, boundless grace. We've just been singing about grace, grace, grace that paid for my sins and gave me new life. Grace, I mean, the, the boundless, measureless grace of God. And so as we study how God saves us, we become more amazed 
at his grace. And that's exactly what I hope will happen with us this morning. See, notice this at the bottom of your outline. 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 gives us a beautiful glimpse into God's soteriology or how he saves us. And we want to see just a couple of key words, a couple of key verses here that will help us to understand that this morning. So turn, turn your page and notice with me at the box on the top of the page there, and we're cutting it down. I've underlined what we're going to study. Last time we studied in, the, in this uh, book, it was verse 1, the first half of the verse. Now this morning we look at the second half of the verse and verse 2. So in verse 1 it says, my little children, I am writing things to you so that you may not sin. Why? Because of victory in Christ. But look what he says in the middle of the verse. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Can you circle that word advocate? Key word for us this morning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's who the advocate is. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Circle the word propitiation. That's not a word that you use this week, I doubt. It's not every day that we use the word propitiation, um, but it's an important word. It shows up twice in the New Testament. It shows up twice, in fact, in this letter, and so here we see it. Notice here, biblical soteriology, as we are studying this, it reveals two things, and we see them in these verses. The first one is it reveals the problem of our destruction. If you're going to study how God saves someone, you've got to understand that we have a problem. We have a problem in that we are headed for destruction. And why are we headed for destruction? Our sin. Put that in there, our sin. And so notice Romans 3.23. It says, right there on the outline, it says, For all have sinned, circle that word all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now what's interesting about that is the word sin means to miss the mark or to fall short. It's to not hit the mark. Hitting the mark is the holiness and the glory of God. And so we're not holy, and so we miss the mark. We miss the target. We have sinned against the holiness and the glory of God. And then look at Romans 6, 23, what it says. The wages of sin is what? Is death. This is destruction. Put out there to the side, destruction. And so this isn't only talking about physical death. That did come to us from sin, but the great concern is what is called the second death. If you read in Revelation, you hear the second death, the second death, which is the banishment from God for all of eternity. This is hell. This is the real, literal, eternal hell that the Bible speaks of from the beginning all the way to the end, that Jesus spoke of more than heaven. The reality of destruction, the reality of danger. On our front sign this morning, it says, love warns of danger. That's what love does. Love warns of danger. And sin is dangerous because sin leads to destruction. So notice Isaiah 59 verse 2. 
So we go back to the Old Testament, and whenever you see some strange indentations on these outlines or in most Bibles, it's because you're looking most likely at poetry. And so these indentations aren't a problem with my formatting. These indentations are showing us that now we've gone over into Hebrew poetry. And so look at Isaiah 59 and verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, if you're looking for a rhyme in English, you're not going to find it because this was originally written in Hebrew. But we, we need to understand that the thought progression is such that it's unfolding it, and God often uses that. So look at this again, Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You're cut off from God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that, you so that he does not hear. You see, our sin is the reason for our distance from God and potential destruction. Now look at Psalm 14, 2 through 3, makes very clear that all have sinned. Again, like Romans 3.23 says, but look what it says. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any, underline the word any, if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But notice, they have all, circle that word, all, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. And so this study of salvation begins with recognizing our need to be saved, recognizing the loss that is here. But biblical soteriology doesn't leave us in our sin, praise God. Biblical soteriology leads us to the rescue. You see, the solution, number two, the solution of our rescue, that's what we study. This is how God saves us, and he does that through Christ. And it is only through Christ that we are saved. Look at Romans 6.23. So we already saw the first part of this verse underneath number one. Now underneath number two, we see not just the condemnation of the wage of sin or the consequence of sin being death, but now we see a very important little three-letter word there in the middle of this. It is the word but. It's the contrast. Look at Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at Romans 5 in verse 6. For at, the just, for at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. My friends, the salvation of God is a glorious thing for us to begin to sink our teeth into, to consume, to rejoice in, and to take on. So let's go and let's see the passage one more time at the top. I want you to see this. In the middle of that, what I've underlined is this, and this is what we're studying. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. You see, God's glorious salvation here in this section, we see number one, the horrible but necessary 
assumption. And what is the horrible but necessary assumption that is here? True Christians are sometimes still going to sin. John is acknowledging that. John is saying, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This is a subjunctive case that is coming along and saying, look, if anyone does sin, and here's the idea of the way it's constructed, if anyone does sin, and most certainly you're going to, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Notice this with me. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, we, we begin to see this, that we walk with him and he still has to cleanse us from our sins. Um, in fact, I want you to take your Bible and turn over there to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. This is not on the outline and it's not on the screen in front of you. Hope you have your Bible open. Look at 1 John verse one, or chapter 1 and verse 7. Look what it says. But if we walk in the light, and the idea here is if we are continuously walking in the light. So chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And look at what happens. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is a continual cleansing. And so the picture is this. We're, we, we are going to sin, but for the true Christian, not only are we going to sin, but his sin, listen to this, his blood is going to continue to cleanse us from our sins. I want you to recognize that this is God's grand plan. First John chapter 1, verse 7, we walk in him, he still cleanses us. Some of you have discovered Romans 7. I remember when I discovered Romans 7. I remember when I discovered Romans 7 as I was a young believer really seeking to start to walk with God and have victory over my sin, and I hadn't yet figured out that it was Christ who does that in me. I was still trying to do it in my own strength. And so I was, as I was learning, I remember I came to Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul describes his struggle with sin. And the Apostle Paul just admits his tremendous frustration with himself, but his great satisfaction with Christ. And it's because he had discovered that the only hope that he would have to have victory over his sin is through Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so I just want to say to you, yes, it's, why is this a horrible assumption? Because sin is horrible. And every believer that comes to walk with God is called to recognize that sin is always horrible. And just because someone is a believer and that they are a Christian and that God has come and brought his forgiveness to them, it doesn't make sin any less horrible. In fact, in some ways, it brings us to be even more accountable for that sin. Notice number two. The glorious and gracious reality, the glorious and gracious reality, Jesus Christ the righteous is still going to represent us. This is a glorious and gracious reality. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's who he is. That's what he does. Look with me there. In verse 1 it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Now that word advocate is very interesting. It's parakletos, parakletos. And notice what it means. It means one who comes alongside. This is a very, very intense picture that God gives. In fact, you know, there's different themes that we make a lot of movies about, if you think about it with me. There's different themes. There's themes of war. There's themes of love. There's themes um, of struggle. There's, there's, there's all kinds of different things that we do. But a lot, of, a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies that are made, a lot of stories that are made, especially in modern era, have to do with a legal fight. I mean, some of the great movies of courtroom drama. In fact, we had, I mean, who was the guy that was on TV every night, or excuse me, every week back in the 50s and the 60s? Say it again, Rick. Perry Mason. I mean, you know, he, he was one of the first big ones, you know, Perry Mason. And then there's everything else, and then we get into this really low life, you know, modern day reality TV of Judge Judy and everything else, you know, really sick stuff. Um, but we, we often think about things in legal terms. Well, I want us to see here that this is part of the legal term, and part of the picture is, is that you're at the bar as the accused. And you're there standing before the judge, the righteous, holy judge of God. And what we come to find is, is that there's one standing next to us. There's one standing next to us representing us. And not only is he representing us and, and arguing our case, but what he's saying is, even far beyond that, he's saying that this one's mine before the holy and righteous judge. And so we're not there at the bar standing before God alone, but we're there at the bar standing with Christ, the righteous who is standing with us. That's what it means. He comes alongside. He is our representation. And this is the same word that would be used later to describe the Holy Spirit who would come and be our comforter and be our one that strengthens us from the inside. But notice here, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see a different word that is used, but it's along the same lines. For there is one God and there is one, what does it say? Mediator between God and men. And who is that? The man, Christ Jesus. Let's read that verse out loud together. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, keep going, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So you see, this is a, a legal term. This is the testimony given. This is the mediator, the one that's coming in between, the one who is running interference, to use a sports term. We, we see this, that he gave himself as a ransom for us. So look back at the top of the page, the box on the top of the page. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a lawyer with God. Not only a lawyer, but a mediator. Look at Roman, or Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Now the point in what we are saying is this that we have such a, underline it there, high priest, one who is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So in this picture, he is the high priest that's sitting next to God. And that priest goes between God and man. He is the representative between our sin and a holy God. Notice here with me. Number three on the last sheet. As we're studying God's glorious salvation, we also see another phrase that is here that's important. Number three, that Christ also appeases the righteous, wrathful judgment of God. Christ also appeases the righteous, wrathful judgment of God that we deserve. You see, he comes, in verse 2 is talking about the fact that he is the propitiation. So we're going a little bit further. Not only does he advocate for us, but now he comes, and this word propitiation is very important because it's describing what he actually does to save us. The word propitiation sheds light on how God saves us through Jesus Christ. Propitiation, fill it in, is similar to the word appeasement. It's similar to the word of satisfaction, or another very religious word, the atonement. And what we start to see is here, he's not only speaking for us on our behalf, but he's coming and he's standing in our place and taking upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve so that God may be satisfied, God may be appeased. Our sin is atoned for. It's no longer held in deficit. Notice this. Fill this in. Its usage usage reveals, the, the word propitiation reveals that our sin incurs a certain coming judgment from God. But that impending doom is escaped. It's escaped because God's wrath is what? Appeased. It's satisfied. It's atoned for. So, I want you to think for just a moment in different storylines, either in stories or in history or in anthropology, you've studied that people have views that we must satisfy the gods or we must satisfy our ancestors. We have sinned against this god. Maybe you would go back to Greek mythology or other mythologies that are there. And the god His wrath must be appeased. And so it's often believed that something has to be done, something has to be given to appease this God or appease this spirit. And there's many people who live their lives, even today, thinking that that is the way that it works in, in their ancestral worship or in various other deities that they worship. They think that the God must be appeased. And sometimes they think that, well, I have to do something to pay that price. I have to sacrifice something. I have to give something. And, and then if I finally do it, and this is where it goes all the way from, you know, somebody is, is making a small sacrifice and seeking to pay for their sins that they, they believe that they've committed in their heart, or all the way to the very pagan uh, uh, Baal worship and Balaam worship, where a child's sacrifice would sometimes even be offered. I have gone to the ruins at Tulum. And evidence points that in Tulum, Mexico, there were the steps of human sacrifice. 
at various places, and those places are around the world. So that would be on a very extreme measure of, of saying if we want this, if we want the weather God's favor, or if we want the health God's favor, or if we want the war God's favor, then we must appease his wrath in some way. And so this is, this is a phrase that we would see in pagan worship all around us. But this is also a phrase that the Jewish people would understood very, very well, because it points it points to the Ark of the Covenant, and it points to the mercy seat of God, and it points to the fact that the blood would be offered onto in the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the Shekinah glory of God would consume that blood sacrifice, pointing to the coming Messiah. And so this is this is this is something that we can see from Jewish history and the fulfillment of of the law, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that we come to find that this one who is going to be the sacrifice is actually God. That it's not me, it's not you, it's not someone atoning for someone else. That can't happen because all have turned aside in our sin. But here we come to see that it is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation or the satisfaction, the appeasement of our sin. Notice here with me, that which was owed is paid or reconciled. The debt is paid. That which was, which was unjustified is now justified. That is what has happened. And not only do we see that, but notice, notice here with me, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God and how do we have the peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next one. For if while we were enemies, you see, that's, this is the picture of we got a problem with God. Verse 5, 10, chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more shall we be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so it is, it is all through Christ that we are reconciled. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Speaking of Jesus. So for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. And look what it says there, underline this. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So what we have to see here is that Jesus is the one who is that appeasement. Jesus is the one who is that satisfaction. He brings the satisfaction that the debt has been paid. And the only reason that it can be Jesus is because he is the perfect sacrifice. And this, we come to see, is God himself. Now look at number four with me. Christ's sacrifice is generously sufficient for all believers around the world. Christ's sacrifice is generously sufficient for all believers around the world. Look what the text says. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now notice this. This salvation is not available just to John and his readers in Asia Minor. That's what he's saying here. This isn't just for us and our little clan that's here in Asia Minor. 
This is also for the whole world, that Jesus, his sacrifice was sufficient to handle all of the sins of those here. Now, we know this, and notice this, this is an important statement, because this isn't talking about some unlimited atonement in the idea that Jesus pays for sins that does not save people. That, 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 is, that is a very, very false idea and a false doctrine. Notice here with me, we know this does not mean that the sins of non-believers are appeased. No, the sins of non-believers are not appeased. They bear the judgment of that because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. In fact, he even says that in late, just in a few chapters away, which we'll study in a couple of months. Notice here, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12, look what it says. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is, underline it, in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Underline the last section here. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Double underline the end, does not have life. We need to recognize that John is not saying all sin is appeased for. That would be contrary to most of the rest of the soteriology sections of Scripture in the Bible. But instead, what he is saying for is this, is that anyone who's going to be saved in the whole world is going to be saved the same way through Jesus. In fact, John 3, verse 36 also says something similar to this. Look what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever, very important, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Underline it. But the wrath of God remains on him. Now, John, is he's writing this, as we're going to see next Sunday, and as we're going to see in the coming Sundays, listen, John is going to show us that belief and obedience go hand in hand. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. The belief and righteous living go hand in hand. We don't, we, we, we recognize, yes, we are going to sin, but the amazing truth is, is that Christ is still our advocate. We don't go on practicing, we're going to see him use this term, we don't go on practicing sin saying, oh, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, praise be to God. We see Paul deal with the same thing. We see Peter deal with this. Jesus put a very high premium on people who are following him, obeying him. So we come and we recognize that he is at work in this. Here's some important questions for us. I think we ought to meditate on some things as a result of this passage. Number one, why would Christ remain our advocate even when we sin? I mean, I can understand him being our advocate and there being God's salvation and then finally it's all wiped away and in that being done, and now we see how much he saved us once we realize that and once we come to a place of salvation. But why would, he, why would he go on with us in this? And why would he do it this way? I think that's a good thing for us to meditate on. I think that's a good thing for you to consider. Why would Christ remain our advocate even when we sin? Look at the next one here. How should this knowledge that Christ remains our advocate 
Because that's what verse 1 is clearly saying. How should this knowledge affect our relationship to him and our behavior? When you think about your sin, when you think about your sin struggles, when you think about his work, and you think about your relationship to him, your faith in him, how should this knowledge affect our relationship to God and our behavior? And then this is also a very important one. Do you know that you know that Christ is your advocate? Do you know that you know that? I mean, what we're really asking there is, are you sure? Because we've just read passages that talk about the wrath of God still being on us if he is not our advocate. This is talking about you and your relationship with God. This is talking about you and your relationship with Christ. Has he become your advocate? He can be through faith and trust in him. He can be by you transferring trust in yourself or seeking to appease God yourself, but recognizing that he alone is the sacrifice that can pay for all of your sins, all of your lies, all your lust, all of your brokenness, all of your foolishness. My friend, this is the glorious gospel of Christ, the ultimate advocate. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Father, this morning we see this glorious picture, Lord, of you paying the price for us, of you satisfying the holy demands of God. This morning we see this passage that shows us that you, in fact, are that which justifies your people. You take them from unrighteousness to righteousness. You take them from being unholy to making them holy. And Lord, it doesn't have anything to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what you did when you died on the cross in our place. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would come and that you would bless the preaching of this word. I pray that you would bring people to faith in Jesus. I pray that they would see that they need you to be their advocate. They need you to be their propitiation. That their sins need to be satisfied before God. Because either Christ will satisfy them or the wrath of God upon us will be satisfied by our own destruction and rebellion. Lord, I pray that you would bring people to faith in Jesus today so that that may be completely averted, rescued by the blood of the Lamb. And Father, I pray that we would grow in our appreciation for your grace, that grace unmeasured, full and free, would be our whole message and mantra that we live by. So that we would say, Lord, take our lives. You gave your life for us. Take our lives. Let it be consecrated, Lord, for you. May we live in obedience to you in all things. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray.